Hi, everybody. I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. When Sean asked me if I would share with you guys, I asked a favor. I asked him if I could pick a topic instead of telling you my story. And the topic is kind of dear to my heart right now because our group, the group that I'm the home, my home group is the Loyola group, and we have just probably gone through about a month of soul searching on how we're going to take care of some of our growing pains. And one of the biggest parts of a growing group is how to welcome the newcomer. And so I asked him if I could choose that as a topic. My guess is that you will find, by the time that I'm finished tonight, that you'll probably know more about me from talking about this topic than you would have if I shared with you, quote-unquote, my story. Uh, welcoming the newcomer. First of all, why do we do this? I'll tell you the way I look at it. I think that when people first come here, we're kind of like a, a flicker of a candle and in a wind, and it's so easy for that light to go out. And so if the person is here or the person is talking to you about AA, it is a very important thing that we have to do to carry the message. I also look at it kind of like a train, and it's kind of like the coupling of the train, in fact. The, you know when you're in Eastern Oregon and you see a real big long train, it has a whole bunch of different <coughs> engines. I kind of see that in AA as Bill Wilson, one of those engines, and Dr. Bob, and the big book, and the, the experience of the many people that have come before us. And what happens is that we kind of couple in like this, like a train does. And the good part of it is, is that we have those other people pulling us forward. And if we do it right, we grab onto some, or somebody grabs onto us, and we pull them along too. And frankly, you can't get out unless you stop. And that is, I think, what we have an obligation to do with people when they come into AA, is to grab on, not let them go, and take them for this ride that has been given to us. I gotta tell you how I, I was introduced to AA, the welcome that I got. The man that I went to see first was named Vic Curtin. He was a re retired police lieutenant. He was the father of one of the kids that I had gone to school with. And he was a white-haired old man to me. And I went to his home, and I talked to him, uh, and he did most of the talking. And he told me about himself. And something that I had never thought would have happened in preparing for this deal, because I knew for two days that I was going to go see him, is that I wasn't expecting for him to be telling me stories about his life that were stories about my life. And that he was, he had already retired and had another job, so he probably at that time was, was about <coughs> 60 years old. But he made a lot of sense. And I made a deal with myself. And the deal was that I would not take the first drink, that I would go to meetings on a regular basis, and I would try to keep an open mind until I figured out what an alcoholic was. Now, you know, we all go to meetings, and people get up, and they share, and they say, I'm Bob, I'm an alcoholic. I'm Sean, I'm an alcoholic. And then you call on a newcomer, and the newcomer goes, well, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. And then they think, God, I 
just said I was an alcoholic. And they think they've done it. And they haven't done anything. What they did is that they repeated something. And I think that it's very important that we make the new person know that it isn't so important that you say you're an alcoholic. It's important that you know that you're an alcoholic. And again, in welcoming the newcomer, I think that that's something that we can do. I'll tell you something. If I stay sober tonight, and I bet I will, I will have been sober 10,588 days, and that's in a couple of days. We, you didn't have enough candles. I didn't want to tell you. I start my 30th year. And, and <laughs> let me tell you another thing. In that 29 years, I have never had one week go by that I haven't gone to at least one AA meeting. Now, that is the thing that makes the difference for me. Vic taught me how important it was to be in AA, not around AA. He didn't tell me that I could read this and, and mimic it and change my life. What he told me is, watch how I do it. Watch how he does it. And I could relate much, much better to that instead of people who lived in 1935 or people who, who uh, were from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I can look at a guy's face who lives in Portland, Oregon, and, and just like looking at David when he shared with you tonight, the, the sparkle that he has in his eyes. You know, you can't see the sparkle in their eyes in this book. But you saw when David spoke, he was excited about his sobriety. Let me tell you how I do it, how I welcome the newcomer. First of all, I notice that they're a newcomer. Now, part of the reason that I do that is that I go to the same meeting all the time. I also sit in the same place all the time. Now, when you do that, you have a certain perspective. And so if somebody comes in that's, and they're new, then you'll notice it. Another thing to look for is people that are sitting alone. I think your name's Ron, right? Ron was sitting alone tonight. He, I mean, he went right to the back of the room, and he sat down, and nobody was around him. So I walked over, and I told him that I was Bob Birchall, and he told me his name was Ron. And I remembered what his name was. I made a point of remembering what his name was. Not to tell you what his name was, but I do that when I, when I meet a new person, and I look them right in the eye, because I want them to know that I think that they're important. Because they are important. They're important to AA, and they're important to me. And I'm important to them. And if they don't, if Ron doesn't get to meet me, then, then Ron doesn't know what Vic gave me, or Charlie, or Dana, or Phil. And I could go on and on. Another thing is, don't be afraid to go up to somebody that doesn't look like you. You know, you can be so, so surprised by somebody that maybe has with me, anybody has hair, but, <laughs> but somebody that's got a long pigtail or, or somebody that's, that's got earrings or tattoos or whatever, you know what? I, I learned a long time ago not to be afraid, not to make a judgment that those people don't want what I have or I don't want what they have. And so I just go right ahead as, as if I couldn't see them. Another thing that I do is that I come early, 
and I stay late because that way I have a chance to meet more people. I have a chance to talk with people. Things get busy in meetings. During the meeting, I want to be focused on what's happening in the meeting. But I'm there before and I'm there after. And all of us could do the same thing. I say, I look him right in the eye and I say, hi, I'm Bob Virgil. And I say what my last name is because we're not anonymous from each other. And I don't want that guy to go away and think if I said I'm Bob B., oh, he's ashamed to tell me who he is. We're not ashamed in AA. You know, if there's any shame, it's the symptoms of the disease. And I don't have those symptoms. And I haven't had them for a long time, except in little spurts, and I, and I work on those. Another thing is that I keep looking at the person that I'm talking to. First of all, he's kind of skeptical, probably. I'm making an assumption here, but it's probably a correct assumption. I also, uh, it's so easy to look right over him. You're talking to somebody, and then you're kind of looking back to see what's going on, and you're giving that guy a chance, when you look away from him, to think away from you. And your message is, hey, buddy, we want you to be here. Now, you're, you're hearing me talk about men, mostly, because... I'm a member of an all-men's group. And so, help me with my words. When you change it in your mind, if you're talking, uh, if you're thinking of talking to somebody and it's a woman or whatever, then you say her. Um, you know, another thing I do is I, is I get on their level. One of the worst things I think you can do is walk up to somebody that's sitting down and kind of tower over them, especially if they're new. And so I sit down with them and and just kind of saddle up next to them. I, uh, as I said to you, I act like I'm interested because I am interested. And I get into a conversation with them. I ask their name, as I said before. I remember it. If sometimes if if I'm kind of cloudy, I might walk away from them and and pull out my pen and write down. Ron, I'm not cloudy tonight. I didn't have to write it down. But I do not want to forget that guy's name. And so I'll do whatever I have to do to put it in here or on here so I can call him by his name. Another thing I do is I give him a good firm handshake and and I, uh, I'll ask him questions. I'll say, is this your first AA meeting? And then I'll listen and see what they say. If they're a visitor from out of town, how many How many of us have gone to meetings elsewhere? And we go in, and you know, i got a lot of time. I've been around AA. I have gone into meetings in South Bend, Indiana, and sat down at a table, and not one person out of, we'll say, 25 people came up and asked me who the hell I was and what I was doing there. Not one. I don't want that to happen in my home group. I don't want that to happen in front of me and I can do something about it so it doesn't happen in front of me. I also am very blunt and upfront with people. I'll say, are you having trouble? That gives him a chance to tell me what he's here for. I'll say, uh, I'll prompt them. I mean, it's a lot of people when they first come are afraid. And so if you wait for them to tell you what they maybe want to tell you, you're going to wait a long time. And so you ask the question. Have you been having trouble? I also ask them, what got you to AA? 
question like that can make somebody tell you that it's the wife or the judge or the or the automobile wreck or the um, whatever it might be, the children being taken away from him. Give them a chance to tell you while why they are there. I tell them uh, that they'd be smart to decide that they should stay here and listen. In fact, if this is happening at a meeting, I tell them, you know, I'm not telling you what to do, but let me tell you what I'd do if it were me. You're going to hear some people really, really speak very well here tonight, and you're going to be motivated maybe to want to share the same way. But from from being around here quite a while, I know how tempting it is for you to want to be thinking about what you're going to say instead of about listening to what you need to hear. And so my suggestion to you is that you make up your mind right now that if you get called on in this meeting, that you're going to say, I'm Bob, I drink too much, I drink too often, and I just like to listen. And have it in your head, and that way you don't put the pressure on yourself and you will hear what you came here to hear and what we are here to share with you. Uh, I tell them, if I'm sitting down with them before the meeting, to look for the similarities, not for the differences. If, if we had to uh, base our projected new recovery on, on trying to figure out, well, who I'm like or who is who isn't a, as good as I am, or who has cocktail parties when we go and just drink. Uh, so you don't want to listen to somebody that grew up having cocktail parties. You tell them, listen for the similarities. When the meeting is over, I always go back and try to talk to that person again. I remember their name. I ask them how they liked the meeting. I also say to them, would you... Would you like to have my phone number? I'd like to give you my phone number, and I want you to feel free to call me any time if you want to talk about what this is all about, or any time you feel like you need some help. And I take out my pen, and I'll, I'll write it down, or I'll take out my card, and while I'm doing that, I say to them, by the way, would you like me to take your number too and check up on you? And very, very few people say no. And it's a casual, easy way to see who they are. I write my whole name down for them, and, my, and I usually give them my cell phone because it'll find me wherever I am. And so when they want to call, I will be there to talk to them. Now, those kinds of things that I'm just talking about are the, the things that happen when you meet somebody at, at a meeting. But most of us, if we stay around long enough, and people know that we're on the program, will we'll call us and say, there's somebody else that uh, I know that's having trouble, or their husband or their wife is having trouble. Could you maybe uh, see them? And so I set up an appointment, and I go or have this person come to me, much like I did with Vic. And I'll say to them in the beginning, tell me about yourself. And if they kind of wonder what you're saying, I'll say, well, are you married? And have you got any kids? And where'd you grow up? And how old are you? And some of the just very simple things. And then I will start asking them about their troubles with booze. And, and I'll also say, when did you last use and drink? Because 
I don't want anybody to think that that is such an embarrassing thing that oh, we don't talk about that. We do talk about that. And I want them to know what my attitude is about it. I'll also ask them, have you ever tried to quit before? And that might prompt a history that is important in helping them and sharing things with them. And then I say, do you want to quit now? You know, a lot of people don't. A lot of people got here because somebody sent them here, because they're in trouble. But they really don't want to quit. Mary Louise talked about going to treatment. She's there for 30 days. She spent a fortune. She left the place and didn't feel like she really belonged. But she says, I kept going. I kept doing what they told me to do. And it's a process that continues to happen. So if the guy says to you, or the woman says to you, well, you know, I, I, I really kind of enjoy drinking, well, then go to the next step. Well, how's it working out for you? <laughs> you know, another thing that I do is that I tell them my story. And, and in my story, I tell them about my St. Patrick's Day in 1970 doing Irish, an Irish jig on the table of Poor Richard's restaurant and drinking Irish whiskey for 35 cents a shot. And, and, and I tell them, about not wanting to go see Vic, and then when I did go see Vic, how he just made so much sense to me, and it gave me hope, and and I decided to do something like I had never done before, and by telling my story, it makes them feel, I think, a little bit more comfortable about sharing their part of their story with you. We had a guy that was a member of our group years ago. In fact, the Loyola group is named the Loyola group because it met for 45 years at the Loyola Retreat House, a facility run by the Jesuit priests over on Southeast 43rd in Franklin. And through the years, there have been lots of Jesuits that have also been members of our group. And there was one such priest who's now dead that constantly would be telling about these people that would come to the retreat house knock on the door and want to talk to a priest and then talk about their problem with alcohol and how it's broken up their family. And and, uh, and he would then tell our group how he was telling them what he had learned from our group. You know what? Not once in all those years did I ever see one of those guys that he talked to come to our meeting. And I can't think of a better way to help somebody than to bring them to or take them to a meeting, a meeting that you have all kinds of faith in, and a meeting where they then can really get the program. And that uh, I can't think of a better tool for helping a new man and welcoming the newcomer than making him a part of something that is just so fantastic. And that means get him to your meetings. You know, another thing that I do is that I, uh, I give them a schedule. Frankly, I don't think in all the years I've been in the program, I've given more than two people a big book. And the reason for that is because I think it's too complicated in the beginning to tell you the truth. I think that when you first meet a newcomer and welcome that newcomer, <laughs> if you gave him this, especially if he's got brains and, and thinks he's real smart, 
he will want to read this and give you a book report. And then he thinks that he's done it. But if he hasn't kind of gradually gotten into the program, I think that you will find that he will be very disappointed with what the program offers to him because he hasn't really, I don't think, done it right. And so I kind of soft-pedaled the big book in the beginning. And I would rather that he sees the examples of AA in Joe and Eric and Ed, Dominic and Jim, Sean, things like that. Another thing that I do is that I follow up and that I'll call the guy during the week because I have his number and I'll say, hi, this is Bob Birchall from the Loyola Group, just calling to check in and see how your week's going. I can't tell you how that affects people that, first of all, still kind of feel embarrassed that they went to an AA meeting. They met somebody, they talked about being maybe an alcoholic. I mean, their whole life maybe has been turned upside down. And you're calling and you're just friendly and you're reaching out to them and it, it, it has an effect. In fact, I could mention a whole bunch of names of people that I have done that with because Vic did it with me. And they're, they have, you know, lots and lots of years on this program. And it was that, I won't call it a hook, it was, it was that hug on the phone. So they could feel, you know what, maybe this is for me. This, this, might, this might be the answer to my own prayers. Another thing I do is I encourage them to come to the meeting again next week. And sometimes I plan to meet them ahead of time or plan to talk with them afterwards. If I do that, now they have a commitment. And so their, their best ideas of, yeah, oh, I'll see you there, and, uh, and you don't see them. But if you, have a, if you have an appointment with them and a commitment, and you have called them during the week, it's highly likely that they will be there. I look for that new man at the meeting. I make, make a point of searching them out. I talk to them. Uh, another thing is that don't be afraid to ask them if they stayed clean and sober. That's what this is about. That if you go up and you namby-pamby and you don't ask them that question, they're going to go home and think, well, this isn't so bad. I can go to the meeting on Monday. I can drink on Tuesday. I can drink on Wednesday. I can drink on Thursday. I'll get well on Friday and I'll... And, and I'll just drink when I watch the game on Saturday, and I'll get well on Sunday, and then I'll go to the meeting and become a better person again on Monday. But if you ask them, did you drink, did you use this week, you're putting this whole thing in perspective. If they say, no, I didn't, you say, great. Are you feeling better? Anybody else noticing in your life? Keep it up. The guy will say, yeah, I got, I got seven days. And I said, God, call me when you got eight. You know, that's, that's the way I think that we need to look at this thing. Encourage them. If they didn't stay sober, you say, well, you know, it's a 24-hour-a-day program. You can start your day over right now. And if they smell like alcohol or their eyes are all glassed over like they've been smoking pot, notice it. Say something to them about it. Yeah, I can smell that you've been drinking. Don't let them think that they fooled you because it's the kiss of death for them to think that they fooled you. 
Let's talk about attitudes for a second. I think that it's a true statement that you can't drive anybody away from this program. If a guy wants it or a woman wants it, you can't do anything to keep it from them. But I'll tell you something. The flip side of that is that I believe that we can do things that can help people really want this program. And, and that's that attraction kinds of, kind of thing, where we, we are willing to be, to show them that we're a happy person and that this is a life that maybe they could have. I think I had been sober for about four months. By the way, I went, I went to meetings every week, didn't miss, didn't drink, and when I got called on, I said, I'm Bob, I drink too much, I drink too often, because I didn't know what an alcoholic was, and I wasn't going to say I was one. I wasn't being stubborn. I really didn't know what an alcoholic was. After about 12 weeks, it became very clear. Good news, bad news. Bad news was I was an alcoholic. The good news was I already knew I could live with this thing, and I could live pretty well. I think that I had been sober, maybe, it might have been about four months, maybe five months, and Vic called me up, it was a sunny afternoon, and he said, hey Bobby, uh, Bob and Des, now this is a father and a son that both had been coming to our meeting. Bob and Des, uh, Des's wife called, and he and Bob are up in a, in a mobile home up somewhere out in Clackamas County, and they're drunk. And she wanted, she wanted us to go out and see, see what we can do. And he said, Bobby, you want to go on a 12-step call with me? First one I'd ever heard about. First one I'd ever done. God, I could hardly wait. I mean, I was, I was standing out on the sidewalk waiting for Vic to come in his car because we were going to save these guys. And I was going to be a part of it. And so Vic shows up with his car, Ford... Ford Maverick, and we drive way out in Clackamas County, and Vic, Vic was a slow talker. You know, you know how Seinfeld had a close talker? And Vic was a slow talker, and he was a pipe smoker, and he was, he was a guy that had a black thumb, because, because he'd drive the car, or sit in his chair, or wherever, and he, he'd go like this with his pipe, and push down the tobacco all the time, and he fought that same kind of way. He was a slow, but very, very, very good thinker. So we're driving out to uh, to this place. He had instructions on how to get there. And I'm saying, well, okay, now what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And I'm thinking that, <laughs> that this is going to be like a tag team or whatever. And, and, and then we're going we're gonna to save these guys' lives. So we, we find the, the entrance. In, I can see it as if it were today. And we go through this gate, and this kind of dirt road goes up up a hill, and it's real sunny, and there are beautiful trees. I mean, this is a pretty, pretty day. And we wind up this hill, and we get up on top, and there was the most god-awful, ugly trailer at the very top of this thing. This was not a mobile home. This was this was something that Desi and Lucy wouldn't have lived in. This, it was so ugly. So we go in, and and... Des was a man, the dad, that I bet you, of course, probably now, because it's been longer, it's, it's 
exaggerated in my mind. But I, I bet you that he was close to about six foot eleven and probably weighed about three hundred and fifty pounds. He was he was a giant of a man. And we went in there that room, the the room in this trailer, <laughs> and there was one bean beanbag chair and no furniture, and there was there were spots about the size of large pizzas that evidently were throw-up kinds of spots. And and in the in the corner was a stack of empty gallon wine jugs. Now, remember, back in 19, 1970, the only people that had gallons of wine were Italian restaurants or Catholic churches. They didn't sell gallons of wine in those days. But these guys had a whole stack of empties. <laughs> They were so glad to see us. Ah, oh, you guys, you're so great to be here. And Des, the, the dad, his eyes were so puffy that they were just like slits. In fact, he looked like Rocky in the, you know, Sylvester Stallone in the movie Rocky where they had to cut his eye open to finish that round. He was so sick looking. And so we sat down, put our, put our, backs against the, the trailer, and we talked, thick talk, and I listened. And he made a lot of sense, and he told these guys that just the things that, that you and I would tell them if we were in that trailer today. And they thanked us and, and wanted to give us hugs, and, and Des leaned way over and gave me a big slobby kiss in the face, you know, and, and, and we walked out of there, and we got in the car, and we started back down this beautiful little hill, and I was just totally silent. And they weren't going to do anything. They weren't. They didn't listen, I thought. We're driving along, and my head is just down like this. And Vic heights up his pipe, and he's going like this. And then all of a sudden, he reaches over, and he slaps me on the leg, and he says, Well, Bobby, we were successful. And I said, I said, what do you mean? Those guys just kissed us off. They're not going to stop. He says, uh-uh, Bobby, you're missing the point. We were responsible for the effort, not the results. And we made the effort, and we were successful. Now, I share that story with you because that story lives with me today because I believe that that's the responsibility that we have in welcoming the newcomer, that we're not responsible for the results. We're responsible to carry that message, to give to somebody else what has been given to us and which we so cherish. But it's one of those things that gets better as we give it away to other people. Another thing I do is I am not afraid to, to tell a new person what to do. You know, if we mamby-pamby around and, and don't want to infringe upon them, what we're doing is that we're kissing them off, that we need to tell them exactly what they need to know. We need to tell them, in fact, the way I look at it is that we're not selling, we're giving it away, and that we need to let them know what it is. Another thing is that it's very important that we're honest with these new people. It's, there's no need to show off. We don't have to be somebody that we're not. We don't need, you know, the other thing is, they don't need to like me. 
I don't like some of them, but it doesn't make any difference. You know, I heard a story one time about a guy who was a barber, and and he this he worked with this guy in AA, and for four years in a row, this man would come to his barber shop every day and stay for a couple of hours. The guy didn't have a job. He hung out in his barber shop. And actually, I learned this because I was listening to a tape one time about this story. And and I'm thinking as I'm listening to this tape, geez, that's a that's a heck of a nice guy, that barber, that he would give that much time to this guy. And then the speaker on the tape says, and you know what? I never liked that guy. <laughs> and I And I thought to myself, wow, that really is a nice man, that he would give that kind of time for four years every day to somebody that he doesn't like. He must really love that man. He must really love AA and what it's given to him. Another thing is that I don't think that we need somebody's permission to give them what we want to give them. That, yeah, they have to be willing, but frankly, some of the people that we welcome to AA just don't have it. They, they are behind the energy curve. They're behind the thinking curve. And that we need to tell them exactly what is expected of them and exactly what they should do to change their lives. I look them right in the eye and I, I say, you know, my experience tells me that if you choose a half-assed program, you're going to have a half-assed program. You're going to have a half-assed life. But if you do what the people here are telling you to do, you're going to have what you want. You might not have it right away, but you will probably have it just like everybody else has. I also tell them that there's a, there is a room full of people that they're going to be with that aren't necessarily any smarter than they are, but it's a room full of people that know how to be sober and know how to change their life and know how to become a better person. And that's why you're here. That's why we're here. I got a phone call. I, I can't remember how far along I was in the program. I, I bet it was at my first couple of years. And it was a it was from a woman that, that I was a mentor to. And I, I knew her since she was in college. She worked for me for a while. She then started her own company. And I knew that her mother's husband, which would be her stepfather, was somebody that had had a lot of trouble with booze, just from hearing her stories. And I can't quite remember how we got hooked up, but he came to visit me, and we talked, and I took him to some meetings, and and I I felt really good about what I was able to, to help him with. And I got a phone call one night. Actually, I think it was I got a phone call one morning, and he was dead. And he had died in the back seat of his car in the parking lot of a motel in Reno, a motel that he had a room already, that he already had a room, but he died in the back seat of his car, drunk. And, and I thought, you know, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? And then I came to the conclusion, I didn't kill him. And you know the other conclusion that I, came, I come to? If I didn't kill him, 
then I didn't save Don Eva. And I didn't save Don Ruth. And I could go on some other names of people that I gave the same kinds of gifts that Vic gave me. And they, they are thriving. And I can't be afraid that I'm going to kill somebody or that I'm going to tell them the wrong thing. I have to have faith. Faith that what we have learned, what is memorialized in here, and what is memorialized in here my heart and here in my brain is good enough, is good enough to save people's lives. But it isn't good if it stays in here or it stays in here or it stays in here. And that is why I think it's so important that we really go out of our way to welcome that newcomer. I also mentioned to you there's no shame in the disease. It's important that you let people know that. Another thing is that I personally believe, in fact, everything I'm telling you is what I believe in. You're getting it from me. I don't represent AA. I don't represent the Loyola group. The one important thing, another important thing that I think is, that you should take with you is that men should work with men and women should work with women. And the reason for it is penises and vaginas. <laughs> and I say that seriously. That, that my time in the program has taught me that that flicker, that flame of hope has been so extinguished so quickly by somebody being a predator in this program. And if you're members of groups and you have somebody in your group that's a predator, warn everybody about it. You go to that predator and you say, you leave her alone. Don't you dare mess with that girl. Don't mess with her life. Okay. What's the goal? I think the goal is to make the effort. Just like Vic said, make the effort. What can the results be? Look at me. My wife and I have six children. We've been married for 32 years. Luckily. Four years of my drinking. I like myself. I'm a good person. I am a good person. And... That's the result of Vic welcoming me into this program. And I think that all of us can be just as good at it as he was. And I wish you all well. Thank you. Thank you.